Hello and welcome to Inside Exercise. I'm Emeritus Professor Glenn McConnell from Victoria University in Australia. The idea behind Inside Exercise is to bring to you the absolute who's who of exercise research. So exercise physiology, exercise metabolism and exercise and health. And what I'm wanting is for you to get your exercise information from the research experts rather than from influencers. And indeed today I'm bringing to you Associate Professor Jill Barnes from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's an expert on exercise in the brain. So the effect of exercise on brain blood flow, effects of exercise intensity, duration, training, etc. cetera. Uh, cognitive function, so does exercise improve cognitive function? The effects of uh, exercise on the brain of males versus females, uh, aging effects, etc. I found it really interesting. I think you will too, so stick around. If you'd like to do me a favor and also help get the message out, if you could please like, subscribe, leave comments, etc., it makes it more likely when people do a search that the algorithm will suggest inside exercise. And you'll see in the notes that there are timestamps. So if you want to move to a particular area, you can click on the time on YouTube and it will move to that area. Uh, on other platforms such as Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts, you'll see the time and you can just move to that area, but you can't click on it. However, it is much better to get the full context if you watch the whole podcast. Okay, so enjoy. Hi, Jill. Welcome to Inside Exercise. Thanks for coming on. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm glad we finally get to do this. Yes, yes. It's hard, hard to line things up. Um, yes, so we're going to be talking about the brain and exercise. So there's all sorts of things to consider there. But um, I guess mainly you've you know looked at blood flow and sex differences and effective aging and things like that. But um, before we, but we will also talk about, you know, some effects of um, exercise, maybe on cog cognitive function, et cetera. But what I like to do sometimes is just ask, you know, how did you get into, were you a sports person initially or were you a scientist? How did you get into exercise research? Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up like a lot of other people playing a lot of sports. And so I obviously enjoyed sports. Um, I went to uh, university in, during my undergraduate to actually study architecture but I worked in the recreational uh, recreational sports facility, you know, because I need needed money and um, worked as a fitness instructor and really enjoyed that. And I ended up spending more and more time in that building. And then I started working. I started as a research participant in a study, and then got it got asked to be a research an undergraduate research assistant in that lab. And so that was really my introduction to exercise right. research was. Um, as a participant and then working in the lab. And then I really became interested in, in that. Um, and talking with one of the graduate students in the PI, that project was ending related to exercise. And they had suggested that maybe I look at uh, a degree in kinesiology because that's where the graduate mm -hmm. student was doing her work. And at that time, uh, Jeff Horowitz was uh, just coming to the University of Michigan and uh, starting his lab. And so I ended up switching majors and started working in Jeff Horowitz's lab and studying substrate metabolism. And at that time, I thought it was so fascinating that the body could so quickly adapt to exercise. And so that's really what got me excited about uh, that type of research is that exercise can do all of these things. And, it, and at that time, we were really thinking about insulin resistance, insulin sensitivity, risk of diabetes that, you know, just exercising regularly might reduce someone's risk of diabetes. You know, now mm. we know that, but at that time that was really an exciting 
thought. And so from there, I decided to go to graduate school and, and study exercise physiology. Yes. So, so Jeff Horowitz's lipid metabolism, he was actually a good man. I, I put together an exercise metabolism book and he reviewed one of the chapters on lipid metabolism, which was great. But, but I, I, to be honest, I didn't notice until I was looking at your, your information that you went and did your PhD uh, and I think masters with, with Hiro Tanaka. So he was my mate, great mate. So people may have seen, um, I, I interviewed David Costell earlier on, who's a legend, uh, of exercise physiology, who was at Ball State University. Well, we started there in 1965. We were there in 1990. But anyway, Hiro Tanaka was was there doing his masters while I was there. So um, he's a bit of a laugh, but he's a good he's a good guy. So so how did you end up there, and, and what did you do there? So he was does a lot of aging. Yeah. So and, um, I really uh, when I decided to go to the University of Texas, and he was actually just starting there. So I, I guess I like to work with new professors who are building labs. Mm. Um, and I was, I really appreciated the visual aspects of the research that he did, you know, doing wet lab research and doing the assays is one thing, but being able to visualize on a screen, you know, what's happening with the artery with mm. ultrasound uh, type methods to collect data was what I was interested in. That was a kind of a nice change because he was studying the cardiovascular system. He was studying the health of the blood vessels and how the changes with aging, how regular exercise may impact that. Um, and so that ended up uh, being what I focused on for both my master's and my PhD in his lab. Um, it would be nice if, if you could have him on well, your podcast. Yes, yes. So I have I, I've actually asked him. He's been a bit coy or something. I don't know what it is. Maybe we have to have a go at him. Um, and then you went, went with Michael Joyner, who's, who's been on the podcast. Um, he's fantastic. He's been on twice. So, um, so you weren't doing a brain, you weren't doing brain blood flow with Hero, right? But uh, when did you start doing that? What was the? No, and uh, Hero's group was starting to get interested in the brain because we were studying the carotid artery, and they were starting to do some things with. Um, uh, we had an MRI on campus and, and starting to get into that with some of the collaborators, but I didn't work on those projects. Um, and to be honest, I wanted to work with um, Mike Joyner because I wanted to learn about muscle blood flow and, and mechanisms of muscle blood flow is why I wanted to go to his um, laboratory. But when I got there, um, he had a project that was focused on the brain and wanted me to take that over. Uh, and so that involved nice. a lot of learning about blood flow in the brain rather than uh, flow regulation in the blood vessels. Uh, the brain is quite different. And so some of the mm -hmm. things don't translate as we might get into um, thinking about blood flow in the periphery versus blood flow in the brain. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So I thought we could maybe talk about that a little bit. So, you know, we've had people on the podcast and we've talked a lot about muscle blood flow, you know, during exercise, obviously going up a lot into the muscle that's being contracted. Um, and then also we've talked a little bit about even um, with, you know, you mentioned insulin sensitivity. So even exercise can increase insulin sensitivity. And we've talked about how uh, insulin is actually a vasodilator. So it dilates, increases the diameter of the vessels and increases flow. And that can be greater after exercise. But I'm imagining the sort of in increases in flow or changes in flow in the brain are obviously not, you know, 20 fold, 40 fold, like you get during exercise in the muscle. What sort of changes do you get in the brain and maybe you, you talked about um measuring blood flow like how do you actually measure 
brain blood flow. I'm assuming it's quite difficult with a big skull in the way there. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I'm glad you asked that because the the nice thing about this area is it's really uh, open. There's a lot of research questions that are still being addressed. Um, and one of the things that's allowing us to address some some of these questions in a systematic way is the improvement in some of the methodology. Mm. So uh, some of the earlier work was um, utilizing an ultrasound approach that we place on um, various places on the skull, a lot of times at the temple, and that'll allow you to get the velocity of blood flow through a, a blood vessel, a, uh, usually uh, like the middle cerebral artery, for example. So a specific blood vessel, and then you can capture that at rest. You can capture that in response to a stimulus. Um, some people have done that during an acute exercise session. Um, it's a little difficult to do from some of the noise, but um, some people have been able to do that. And some of the work that we, or what we think is happening with exercise comes from that, uh, that literature, that method. Um, and another thing that can be used is a, an ultrasound that's similar to an ultrasound that you might see at a hospital um, that you can look at the diameter of the blood vessel and you can look at the flow through that blood vessel. But a lot of times they do that. We're doing that outside of the skull. So we're doing that in maybe the internal carotid artery or the vertebral artery because we can't use, because of the skull, we can't image yeah. that way. And so we're kind of inferring what's happening based on what's happening in the blood what's vessels going in. to the brain. So you were pointing, um, which is good for people on YouTube. Uh, actually, some people, I, I've talked to people and they say, oh, I didn't realize that you could see it as well. So a lot of people listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and don't realize you can actually watch it on the video. So you were pointing at the front. So maybe just uh, for people that aren't um, watching, maybe just yeah, explain yeah. what we're talking about, the carotid. and yeah. So up uh, to 70% of the blood flow that's going to our brain would be coming from our internal carotid artery, which is the front of the neck and it kind of leads into like kind of real deep into if you follow your neck up uh, into the brain uh, we also the carotid artery will also supply it'll go into the external carotid artery and that'll be a little bit more superficial and it'll supply the blood vessels of the face so outside of the skull okay. but, mm -hmm. but in the face and then there's um in the back of the neck there's smaller arteries the vertebral arteries that go along that vertebral column and that will also supply the brain. A lot of the studies, uh, the the um, a lot of the studies will focus a little bit more probably on the front of the the mm. neck, the internal yeah. carotid artery. They're a little bit easier to get. Um, and and having one ultrasound machine versus two ultrasound machine <laughs> changes the cost of of doing exactly. these studies. But we think that what's happening in the this internal carotid artery in at the front of the neck that's going into the mm. brain that that might represent. Uh, what's happening in the whole brain. That's what we're assuming. Um, granted, this is an assumption that we're making, but um, because of the methods, this is uh, the one way that people are looking at exercise, uh, looking at baseline, maybe looking at during exercise, or maybe they're looking at right before exercise and right after exercise and trying to understand what's happening in the brain. The other method is uh, an MRI-based approach. Uh -huh. So you know, a scan that you would see at, again at a hospital where if you have an injury, you might ha have a scan. We can scan the brain and there's a lot of interest in trying to uh, do some exercise-based approaches in this MRI scanner so that that way we can get a lot more information about what's happening in the blood vessels in the brain, what's happening with blood flow in the brain um, during exercise. 
Okay. Well, there's a lot, of, a lot of info there. It's interesting. So yeah, the carotid and, and people, you can actually, and they always say, don't do both sides. You can actually get your pulse, right? So if you put yeah, your hand yeah. up uh, to the side of your neck, you can get the pulse. But as I said, you don't do both sides because you stop the blood flow. You potentially could stop the blood flow going up. So artery is away from the brain. So carotid artery uh, from the heart. So the carotid artery is taking blood to the brain. And then when people know about the juggler vein, bringing the blood back from the uh, from the brain. I wasn't aware that because I always you always see about as you said you see people talking about the carotid blood flow. I wasn't aware about the the brain. Uh, what did you call it? The vertebral. Uh, yeah, 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 the vertebral arteries. So some some um, people will focus on imaging the the internal carotid artery at the front of the neck, and then mm. they'll also try to image the one of the vertebral arteries at the back of the neck. Because mm. then they know what you know what's going to the the frontal part of the brain versus more of the posterior okay. part of the brain. That's really interesting. Yeah, because um, I guess all right. So can you, is it fair to assume that both carotids are getting the same? Is there any way that they? Because you know, in theory, you could have three Dopplers, right? Do we know that both carotids are doing this? Uh, sorry, I mean both internals. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, based on the data that we've you that we've um have and that we've been publishing and I'm and others as well is there are some right to left differences um, and there's some individual variation so how much is how much is going on going through the left internal carotid artery yeah. versus the right internal carotid artery uh, may not be exactly the same uh, mm. in terms of the That's amount annoying. of blood flow, it makes it harder doesn't <laughs> it does but yeah. we and actually, now that I think about that, we don't actually know if the response is identical, but we assume that the the vessel response to maybe exercise mm. might be similar between the right and left. Um, but between the back and the front, we that may not be a, a fair assumption. All right. And also, I guess I've just thought carotid and that's it. But you're saying there's, there's the, the, the more superficial carotid and the deeper carotid. So you've actually got four at the front in a way and then one at the back so right uh two at the back oh, two, at the, back, the, two at the back and then they'll come together so you um outside of the like lower on you can get the the right and the left vertebral artery um, you can get either or and then they'll come together for the basilar artery you know once you're in the in the skull or you know oh, okay so there's a lot going on i guess i never thought either about supplying the front versus the back of the brain. Crikey. Okay. So when you're putting, sorry, crikey is a word we say in Australia for goodness. Um, so, and the other one is you said you could put on the temple. Yeah. Ultrasound mm -hmm. is it? And then you get this central, what did you call it? Uh, what are you? So it'll be. Um, so if the, if we think about those internal carotid arteries that are supplying the brain and they're kind of coming up through the neck and very kind of uh -huh. deeper, they'll come up through the neck and then they'll actually split off. And, and that's, some of that area that's splitting off is the middle cerebral artery. Okay. And it kind of comes out almost uh, perpendicular to the skull here. So it kind of comes mm. out like this. And so we have this Doppler probe. Yeah. And so yeah. we use Doppler technology to measure the blood flow that's basically coming at it at this, wow. at this location. Some people it's here. Some people we have to go a little bit further back towards the ears to see it. And I'm getting nitty gritty here, but I'm just interested. So, um, and and the jug, I guess the juggler. So coming out of the brain, is it just the two jugglers, or is there also something in the back as well? 
usually we think about the two jugulars when we're when we're thinking about the imaging of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you can measure what's going in, what's going out. So it must be the same, right? Assuming you're in equilibrium. So is it, do people measure blood flow in the jugular? Because I remember we used to measure blood flow in the leg and you could measure the femoral artery or you measure the femoral vein using like thermodilution and things like that. Do people measure the the jugular or is it usually what's going in? Uh, the... Usually they don't measure. I'm trying to think if I can remember a study that measures the flow through the jugular and, you know, I'm, Using some of the MRI approaches, we could try to if we wanted to. But I think a lot of times if uh, some of the older techniques to measure blood flow in the brain uh, looked at the difference between the arterial concentration of something and the venous concentration of something. So in that case, they wouldn't necessarily be measuring the flow per se of the whole vessel, but they might be measuring something that's coming out of the brain. Exactly. And that's the classic study because I've done a bunch of, I've done four visits to Copenhagen to do studies Ah. um, looking at femoral artery and femoral vein differences across the leg with insulin, et cetera. And I know they measured at one stage uh, jugular to measure, and they were measuring that there was like lactate coming out of the brain in exercise, which you you wouldn't sort of predict. Okay. All right. Yeah. Sorry. I kind of get slightly caught up on that, but I think it's interesting. And we've done, you know, blood flow measurements in the leg. So, you know, total flow, but also contrast enhanced ultrasound where you can measure um, the capillary blood flow. Has anyone ever done that? Have they done contrast enhanced ultrasound, you know, where you can actually see how much is going through the capillaries versus the, the, the bigger vessels and things like that. They probably haven't done that in the brain, I guess. Uh, some of the clinical techniques to measure, there's a lot of different techniques in, in terms of MRI that can be measured, can be mm-hmm. utilized to measure either uh, what sometimes we call bulk flow through the brain. So like thinking about yep. the blood flow that's going through the vessels yep. versus what's happening at the level of the capillary, like where exchange might be occurring. Mm-hmm. So sometimes okay. those are thinking about um, looking at the ratio of oxygenated hemoglobin versus there deoxygenated hemoglobin. That's the other one. So that's the and near infrared, is it? Uh, uh, near nears? infrared, mm-hmm. yeah, that's one uh, technique. Also, a functional MRI or uh, uses a technique uh, called BOLD, uh, blood oxygen level dependent. So mm-hmm. a lot of times um, that that's a, another technique that can be used to either uh, not as much measure flow and get a value, but measure differences in flow. Ah, and what about positron? We're getting it kind of nitty gritty, but hey, sorry. What about positron emission tomography? So yeah, that's scans. another technique. Yeah, mm-hmm. not another technique that can be utilized uh, to Look measure glucose use and stuff like that. I yep, guess. yep. And some and of plot. these will use you'll it'll require an infusion of something to mm-hmm. be able to image then. Uh, cool. So something that's labeled or tagged, and then image the brain in that way. So these are used clinically for for. Um, you know, looking at different pathologies for research, they're sometimes used, but for exercise related research, there's not as much uh, during exercise. There's not as much. There you go. There's a question. So if you had unlimited, so if you had a a rich donor come, which they can feel free to, I'm sure. And they just wanted to give you a, you know, unlimited amount of money. What what would you, what would you do to to try and what would be the best way? Would you just throw everything at it? (laughs) You know, like, to, to see what's happening to the brain flow and all that during exercise. Yeah, that's a good question. One one thing I'm really interested in that that ima- imaging would maybe allow us to answer this question, but it would be expensive. Is we're trying to understand like what what exercise does, what what does exercise do for flow to the brain? 
both in an acute sense, but mm-hmm. also somebody who exercises, you know, right. regularly and has for many years versus somebody who doesn't exercise at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's happening with flow at all, first of all, but also, um, and this is kind of outside of my area, but, but what is happening with, uh, glucose, glucose utilization in the brain, mm-hmm. you know, cause yes. we think that more flow is better. That's what we think, but we don't know if more flow is necessarily better. Uh, you know, we, maybe, maybe glucose utilization is what we're, what we're going after, like better glucose utilization rather than more flow going to the brain overall. Yeah. So just to, to clarify, clarify, I guess you're talking about, um, metabolism. So, you know, what, what's the brain actually using? So, Cause the assumption I'm assuming is if the an area is using more glucose, there's more going on there. Yeah. Rather than just like yes. what's happening to the flow type of thing. Yeah. So that, that's a good question. So the way that, um, when they're there, the reason they utilize that technique, uh, to, to measure this is they want to understand, uh, what areas in the brain are active, what areas mm-hmm. of the brain are utilizing glucose, uh, so that they thinking about, um, uh, maybe a, a person who is a, who has dementia, you know, their glucose utilization in certain areas of the brain might be lesser and that might indicate, you know, damage to the brain. There's less going on there. Yeah. So it must get so complicated because I was thinking, you know, I don't, I was only thinking about carotids, you know, supplying blood, but you're talking about the front of the brain, the back of the brain. So it must be difficult. So just say you're looking at exercise and you're saying, oh, is there an increase in blood, blood, uh, blood, brain blood flow during exercise you might just be measuring the carotids and oh there's no real change or it's such a uh you know it's a blunt stick approach because it might be more blood flow it might be 20 fold it might okay not 20 it might be threefold higher in one spot and a, and a third in another spot so it's like there's no change yep and so going back to your question about if we had unlimited resources and we had a wealthy donor who might be willing to assist us is being able to do some studies during exercise and utilizing some of these uh, really incredible techniques to allow us to visualize and view and, and quantify what's happening in the brain during exercise. And then that would allow us to titrate our questions a little bit about, you know, what intensity or, or how long or, you know, is drifting occurring, you know, mm-hmm. the first few minutes of exercise versus, you know, 20 minutes into exercise. All right. And I guess, I guess I, I haven't actually asked you the direct question. So is, is there an increase? So just bulk, you know, into the brain without thinking about what areas, is there an increase in blood flow during exercise? And if so, you know, what are we looking at? Like 20% or, you know? Yeah. So the, the data that's out there does show an increase uh, in blood flow during exercise and in, in looking at a few different methods that we talked about, have there's a few different studies that have looked at that as far as the whole brain and the percent increase i i don't know if i can comment on the percent increase but it's it's not very much it's a small amount and if you think about it we also don't want a large amount of blood flow going to the brain because it's encased in the skull and we don't have a lot of room to accommodate a large increase in blood flow like we do in the skeletal muscle uh, the skeletal muscle, as you know, the capacity to increase blood flow from rest to maximal exercise is really incredible. In the brain, uh, the blood flow does increase slightly, but it's 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 a smaller amount, a much smaller percentage. But does it does it matter though if it's coming in? So the muscle doesn't like blow up or anything. No, like you've got tenfold going in, tenfold going out. Does it does it matter if the brain was doing that though? Or um, 
we, we would still see, yeah, we would expect that we would see a similar amount coming out, but um, mm -hmm. I think what the, um, we have a lot of other processes that are occurring in the brain when we're exercising rather than just movement. And so there's, we're going to have a lot of flow going to a lot of areas of the brain during exercise. But when you're saying you don't want too much blood because there isn't much room, but it, it wouldn't matter if it was coming in and coming out again, I guess is what I was saying. Uh, I guess if uh, the timing is yeah. exactly correct and it's huh. it's flowing through at a very uh, high rate like it does in the skeletal muscle, then perhaps. But uh, you also have the interaction with pressure changes and mm. you have the cerebral spinal fluid changes as well. So it's a little bit different mechanism than when we think about yes. the skeletal muscle. Well, I was, I was wondering about that because, yeah, I guess when you're exercising, you get an increase in blood pressure. So just so people are clear, so you have systolic blood pressure, which is the pressure during the contraction of the heart, then diastolic is going to during the relaxation, and during endurance type exercise anyway, aerobic, the systolic blood pressure goes up, but the diastolic doesn't really change. But basically, you're getting more an increase in blood pressure while you're exercising. Now, I'm sure you don't really want that you don't necessarily want an increase in blood pressure in the brain. And what, what, what goes on there? Is there, is there some way of sort of dampening that? And, and also is there a way to sort of make sure that the blood flow doesn't increase, does increase, you know, if you just allow the pressure, like you turn on a hose, it just goes everywhere. Is there a way of, you know, controlling that to the brain? I'm sure there is, but what do we know about that? Yeah. Yeah. And um, so the, in the brain, the, the brain has the ability to auto-regulate. Uh, you may have heard, or um, listeners may have heard of uh, auto-regulation. So the, the brain also has that, the blood vessels in the brain have that. So for cerebral auto-regulation, there's a very classic um, idea that was, um, that's been uh, used over and over and, and sometimes in, in exercise physiology textbooks or physiology textbooks. Um, that shows that over a range of blood pressure, so blood pressure, if it's increasing, we see this range of blood pressure that um, at very low levels of blood pressure, um, flow is lower. But then in this kind of middle period of blood pressure, the blood flow in the brain is stabilizes somewhat. So, and then if we get too high of blood pressure, then the blood flow in the brain starts to go up. So okay. what that, um, and there's some um, newer information that suggests that it's not exactly maintained at a like plateau or a flat level. There might be some variation in that, but the idea is that the brain is able to auto-regulate, the blood vessels in the brain auto-regulate to accommodate some of those changes in pressure so that it doesn't negatively impact flow. And so the question of whether or not that mechanism is exactly it works in exactly the same way during exercise. I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm trying to think if there's any data that would suggest that we do know in more stressful situations, not physio, not psychological stress, but stress when we are perhaps um, asking a participant to breathe a certain concentration of gases or maybe um, changing the level of oxygen or carbon dioxide that they're breathing. When that stress gets a little more extreme, the thinking is that the autoregulatory mechanism kind of backs off because at that point, it's really trying to uh, get um, what the brain needs. But in some of these other situations, like when you and I are sitting here or we are moving around, that the, our blood pressure might be changing somewhat, but 
the ve blood vessels in the brain trying to make sure that the blood flow in the brain is relatively constant so that um, it's not in a situation where there's not enough blood flow or there's too much blood flow in certain areas. Yeah, I was thinking when I did my undergrad, this was a long time ago, uh, was it 86 to 89? I think the idea then was, you know, when you talk about blood blood flow um, during exercise, you have the, the classic sort of the rest and the exercise and you'd say, there's a reduction in blood flow to the gut. You know, there's an increase in blood flow to the heart, obviously, sorry, to the muscles. Uh, there's an increase in blood flow to the skin if it's hot. And the classic thing would be the brain doesn't change. You know, this auto-regulation means it doesn't change. That was sort mm -hmm. of the classic thinking, wasn't it? But but you're saying now it's generally accepted there's a bit of an increase in blood flow, but not massive. Yeah. Yep, yep. That's what some of the um, data that the literature that exists um, and I think you mentioned that, um, I think, uh, well, we've, we've talked a little bit about the, the, that, that it does increase, but it doesn't increase linearly like we might expect with an increase in exercise intensity, mm -hmm. like we mm -hmm. see in the, the mm -hmm. skeletal muscle. Um, there, there seems to be, uh, you know, and again, there's not a lot of studies. So we're basing this on kind of piecing studies together to, yeah. to try to understand what's happening. But if we think about aerobic based or endurance based exercise, a certain percentage of VO2 max that the participants might be working at. So maybe in that moderate intensity range, it probably increases and then starts to level off. But then once you get to the higher intensity exercise, the data suggests that the blood flow might go down so that it yeah. doesn't continue to increase uh, up and up and up um, uh, with those higher intensity exercises. So you're saying it sort of goes up at, at moderate intensity and then stays at plateaus and then but actually goes down or you mean it just stays the same and doesn't doesn't keep going uh the yeah. data suggests that it kind of goes up moderate and then we're at moderate intensity exercise levels off and then comes down wow what would be going i guess we've got to start thinking and i've been i've been wanting to bring it up of why it's going up so is it is it because you're sending more messages from the the motor cortex so just to clarify to people so you've got this motor cortex um basically in the top middle of the brain i guess and it's sending messages to the muscles and I guess you start thinking, well, if you're doing more muscles, so if you're exercising a bunch of muscles, do you get, so, you know, is, is that the reason it goes up? And if so, do we know if it goes up more when you're using more muscles or, um, well, but yeah, then you'd think good. if it was higher intensity, it would keep going up, but it doesn't. Uh, yeah. So I, I would agree with you. My, the way I think about it is we, we have an increase in uh, when we're exercising, we have an increase in our cardiac output. Our, our heart is pumping more. There's more blood going through our heart. So we get this greater cardiac output overall. And a small percentage of that increase during exercise is going to the brain. And I my um, assumption is that this is because of all of the other things that are happening in the brain, all those neurons that are firing in the brain during exercise, they have more of a metabolic need. And so we see this slight increase uh, it, it's an increase nonetheless, but we do that. We see the slight increase in blood flow to the brain during exercise. Yeah. Um, so they, they're firing the, the nerves that firing. So if you're doing something in your hand, you've got this, I always picture that. What's it called? The sulcus or something. What's mm, it called? Mm -hmm. The, you know, you've got the big, the big bit for the tongue because it's got all these oh, nerves. And I can't uh, remember that. Now. Uh, yeah. I think it is like that. Yeah. So well, anyway, people can look it up. There you go. People can look it up at home. But um, anyway, so you're sending all these messages from the brain to the muscles and they're, they're going to need more energy. Yeah. So that's the idea, but I guess it's kind of simplistic because there's all sorts of 
I don't know. Do we know? I guess we don't know this, right? A functional MRI, like other emotional centers picking up, like, you know, if someone's like, oh crap, I'm running along and, uh, you know, well, it doesn't have to be, I always think, you know, it's a marathon and someone's coming up behind, oh crap, you know, you get emotional. Does that center light up? Like we wouldn't know any of that yeah. stuff, I guess. I, d- I don't know that. There might be some fMRI studies though that exist that would suggest that. And I don't know if this might be a tangent, but uh, you're, might be familiar with a, a really fascinating study that was done a while ago, actually at the University of Wisconsin Madison, where I'm located. Uh, before I was there, but they they were looking at the idea of central command that mm-hmm. uh, anticipatory you know expectation that exercise you know uh, yes. is going to be happening, mm-hmm. and uh, they were able to actually hypnotize. Uh, research participants, and then put them in an MRI scanner and then measure some of these changes in brain activity using fMRI. Mm. And they, uh, so in, they had the participants because they, at that time, they weren't able to do any sort of exercise in the, you know, scanner. So what they were Mm. doing is hypnotizing the participants to see if they, and then tell them that they're exercising and you see the different areas of the brain light up, which I think is a really fast, it's an older study, but it's a really fascinating study about even just the thing, the, the planning or the thinking about exercise, you know, changes some of the uh, activity and therefore the the flow in areas of brain. They actually looked at the flow, the flow went up. They looked at the, that ratio of um, oxygenated to deoxygenated, Ah, which we can interpret that as you know, some flow changes, but also maybe some activity changes. And so there's some a metabolic need there. That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, we know with anticipatory rise in heart rate, et cetera, and breathing, you know, you can have someone that's resting heart rate 60 or something. Their heart rate might be 140, you know, on the mm-hmm. Olympic, on the blocks before the gun goes off. And you're saying based on that study, there was, there was it looked like there was an increase in blood flow and maybe metabolism of glucose or something as well when they hypnotize them to think they're about to start a race. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. So the, uh, and whether or not that's, they're looking at different areas of the brain changes, whether or not that, that reaction results in, uh, as we talked about, like changes within these large internal carotid vessels, it may not be enough to elicit a huge response there, but certainly in the areas of the brain, there's shifting of blood flow that was occurring. Oh, shifting of blood. Yeah, that's the interesting thing as well. Yeah. So you don't need a, yeah, again, so as we touched on earlier, you might have the same blood flow or, you know, a small increase with exercise, but you might have a massive increase in the actual areas that are yeah. firing and maybe even a decrease in other areas. Do you do you actually see that? Do you, do you, do you Have people picked up decreases in some areas during exercise or is it more just sort of picking up increases in the areas you'd think? Um, so, I'm just wondering about the resolution. It sounds... Yeah, it sounds it's, the- Sounds like it's a bit hard to pick up things. Yeah, yeah, and there really haven't been that many studies during exercise that would have the 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 current capability of some of the imaging techniques. I don't think there's a lot of studies that have been able to look at that. Um, there are some techniques that can be used to uh, try to look at blood flows and blood flow in the different regions of the brain. And people do that for a lot of different things, comparing groups of people or maybe the effect of, an inter- of, of some sort of intervention, but not necessarily during exercise. That's a really, it is a question that we, that I. So, okay. So yeah, why, I guess, you know, it's not movement, right? Because I guess you keep the head still. So th- is it just the lack of funding that they haven't looked at uh, during exercise or, or is it 
technical so problems. So some of it, or... so we we are actually doing this um, and it's we've been trying right. to do this for many years. Some of this is related to when you're in these um, clinical imaging facilities, because of the technology of the scanners, there's a lot of restrictions in what you can have anywhere near them. So for example, metal. Yeah. So that means we end up remaking things, remaking equipment in a way that would be compatible with some of these scanning devices. So we couldn't just put a cycle ergometer, a supine yeah. cycle ergometer in there. They, but there are companies that make some devices that that would allow you to do that in the the scanner. It's just challenging because, and and also um, thinking about we're we'd still be making some assumptions because these um, types of scanners are are um, supine. So supine mm -hmm. exercise or exercise laying on your back is a lot, at least for me, it's a lot different than the types of exercise that I enjoy doing, uh, like uh, cycling and, and hiking and things like that, where you're more upright. So there might be some other um, yeah, right. blood flow type shifts that that are occurring, but that's exactly. our current I think ability. I've seen supine cycling versus upright cycling. You get greater venous return, greater stroke volume and things, and maybe a lower heart rate. So there'd be different... Yeah changes in blood pressure and things like that. So what about, do we know much about blood flow? So you're saying exercise hasn't been looked at that much, but what about just at rest? Like if you're, if you're thinking, if you're having to do Sudoku or crosswords or something, do you know, do you get increases in blood flow during that? Or if people are stressed? You know, yeah. No. So some, some uh, times we use what acute cognitive tests uh, to stimulate a small increase in blood flow to the brain. And we would measure that again, like through the internal carotid arteries in the neck, or maybe at the temple, we might measure the velocity of the changes in flow in response to a, a cognitive test. So people uh, do that and look at some of the response. Um, I think that's a really interesting way to look at uh, flow in the brain in a way that you can, you can also do that in the scanner, but we can do that in the laboratory as well. Ask somebody to do a brief memory task or something mm. like that while, while they're instrumented. Count backwards. Yeah. 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 And has anyone looked again at like exercise, like the people that exercise train, do they perform better or worse? Or Okay. I guess, I, yeah. I, I don't know. We want to get to the cognitive stuff in a minute, in a bit, but I guess, uh, have we talked enough about, so, so, so we know that during exercise, if it's moderate, you get an increase in flow. If it's high intensity, it goes down. Uh, do we know duration? Do we know trained versus untrained? And I guess we want to talk also about sex differences, potentially and aging, but actually just before I forget, do we know why would it go down with the high intensity? Do you know? Because that seems yeah. good question. So the, the blood vessel, the brain itself, but the blood vessels in the brain are very sensitive to carbon dioxide. And so we use that to our advantage when testing the, how the vessels respond, because we can use that fact that the, the circuit, the cerebral circulation or the circulation in the brain is very sensitive to carbon dioxide. And we can have participants breathe higher mm -hmm. levels of carbon dioxide. And then we can measure that kind of magnitude of response and look okay. at, we try to look at that. We assume that that reflects blood vessel health in the brain, okay. but, the, but what happens during the higher intensity exercise is that, um, you know, your, your body during, during, because of metabolism and you're doing this very high, uh, high work rate is that, 
you are producing a lot of carbon dioxide on the venous side. And that is, and then this is also helping just, you're also ventilating a lot. You're breathing very hard. So what happens at the higher intensities of exercise, particularly yeah, over um, our ventilatory threshold is um, the, we're breathing out a lot of that CO2. And so because of that, we get this little dip in carbon dioxide on the arterial side, and that's going to the brain. And so we just see this slight reduction in okay. that. Um, so, because, so that's the thinking is that maybe that, because we know if we lower the amount of carbon dioxide on the arterial side, just at rest, we'll see drops. a slight reduction. Okay. So we'll just make sure that that's probably some hard stuff for people to understand. So when you start, I mean, you said it perfectly, but it's still hard for people to get their head around. So when you start exercise, you know, and you increase the intensity, you're using more and more oxygen, and you're producing more and more carbon dioxide. But then, as you said, uh, you get to the point where you start to hyperventilate and you're actually blowing off the carbon dioxide. So you actually blow off more carbon dioxide than the oxygen that you're using and the carbon dioxide actually drops. And you're saying the carbon dioxide stimulates blood flow. And because it drops at the high intensities in the artery, because you're hyperventilating and blowing it off, uh, you end up, you think that's why the blood flow actually drops at the higher intensities. Yeah. So I wonder if that somehow plays a role because you think about what's happening, you know, the brain is going to need oxygen, I guess, to send these messages. You know, we we're saying how during exercise the metabolism would go up. So wonder if that's partly, you know, it might be a central fatigue thing that, yeah. you know, this really high intensity exercise and you start to slow down. Maybe the brain's sending less, less messages. Do we know that? Because of the drop yeah. in blood flow and therefore I assume less oxygen delivery yeah the central fatigue isn't isn't really my area but that no. that makes a lot of sense to me and i uh, i'll have to i would have to dive into the literature to see if that's the current Fair enough to... behind it but it doesn't it would make sense that if we and especially thinking about higher intensity exercise you know blood flow is at a premium you know to a lot of areas of the body at that point and so yeah, perhaps absolutely. there's a little bit of reduction in blood flow to the brain and 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 you know stimulating some of those central fatigue pathways that might be um, activated when blood flow isn't enough. There's not enough blood flow. Yeah. So if people want to hear a bit more about that, we didn't, I don't think we didn't talk specifically about brain blood flow, but um, Samuel McCora, I interviewed earlier about, um, you know, central factors of, you know, rating of perceived exertion and fatigue and things like that. So people can have a look at that. All right. So what about, um, okay. So intensity, so duration, you're saying you don't really know if there's like a drift or anything. If you look at duration of exercise, um, no. uh, training, we don't know trained, untrained. Yeah. that's another great question is if the, a lot of, cause and a lot of times some of this comes back to when we're asking these questions, how do we design these studies where they're going to be feasible? And for some of these exercise-based studies, we're usually relying on people who have a history of exercising to yeah. if we're going to be you know putting all this effort into instrumenting them and then asking them to do some yeah, of these yeah. exercise tasks um so i think there's certainly a way that that could be done to eventually compare you know somebody with a long history of exercise versus somebody who's maybe newer to exercise and if that response is different i my hypothesis is that it is different because we know it's a little bit different when we think about other areas of the body, like how blood flow is being regulated in response to that mm. exercise. But a lot of the studies are done in people who have a history of, of exercise and probably a reasonable, a reasonable fitness level. Yeah. 
Yeah, it'd be nice if you if you could uh, look at the old uh, absolute versus relative intensity. It's like we did hypoxic studies, and you can do you know. Uh, so we, you know, you do the exercise with normal air, and then you do the same absolute intensity mm-hmm. with hypoxic mm-hmm. air, and then but it's high, harder. So then you do a higher absolute. Anyway, okay. Yeah. So basically, because I've started on it, so you know we're comparing hypoxia to normoxia. So you get them breathe normal air, which is obviously fifty percent VO two max. So, and then you do uh, hypoxic air. So the same absolute workload but that's going to be hard. It might be like 75% for them. So then you do 75% with the normal air. But, you know, so you can compare the absolute and relative. It'd be interesting to do that, you, you know, if you had trained, untrained person yeah, and see, yeah. is there a change in blood flow? And if so, is it because, you know, it's just easier for the endurance person? So their blood flow may not go up as much, but it's, but, you know, if you did a higher workload, it would go up. But obviously miles away from that sort of, yeah. There is another approach that um, some people have been using, um, and some of this comes from Sandy Billinger's lab at the University of Kansas Medical Center. And they were, um, instead of looking at blood flow during exercise, instead they looked at the the kinetics of the response. So they had people start to exercise, and, and a lot of these were done in um, middle-aged and, and older adults. They had them start to exercise, and they had a a specific work rate. And instead of like measuring, you know, through the whole duration of exercise, they measured what was happening at that initial part until they reached some sort of steady state. And they found some really interesting results. Uh, And they were looking at the, um, they were imaging the near the temple to get some of Mm -hmm. the uh, blood flow in the brain, but um, looking at differences in um, uh, patients who had a history of stroke, for example, or people who had a higher risk of um, dementia compared to people who had normal, or, or and I think there might even be a um, a group that had some cognitive impairment versus people who had normal cognition. Um, so I think that's a really um, interesting area of research that we're going to see a lot more about is trying because it's hard to do some of these other studies, but trying to understand that you know um, initial stimulus and the response mm-hmm. might be. Um, really helpful for understanding our, our responses to blood flow responses to exercise. Yeah. That's interesting. Do we know how quickly um, blood flow goes up during exercise? Is it something that, um, you know, seconds or is it sort of delayed? Or Yeah. Anything? I'm trying to think back to the figure it's with, it's very quick. I want to say it's like, you know, within, uh, I don't know if it's five seconds or 10 seconds, but it's fairly quick that they're, they see an increase in, the velocity of blood flow through the blood vessels. Actually, and then, and as you said earlier, there may there may even be an anticipatory rise as well. That's um, correct. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and this would be in one, and this is just one blood vessel. So we're thinking that that is representing the whole brain response. Um, that's the tricky part. So you're saying you'd have to do like functional MRIs to to get an idea of the different areas of the brain. That's that's one technique you can use uh, using MRI. That's one MRI technique you can use to look at the different regions of the brain and how they may be changing. Yep, and that's the that's the one you can't have the metal in there, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, because it's magnetism. Yep, yep. All right, so I'm just going to look at Twitter question here. I think we kind of covered this. I had a guy, a uh, person. What are the acute and chronic changes uh, in the brain? So we don't know chronic at all, do we? 
uh, people don't really know training. The, not not during exercise, but some of the data that has been published, primarily in uh, you know the the interest is in people who have neurodegenerative diseases or or thinking about people who might be at risk of dementia. And we know blood flow is really important for that. And so there are studies that look at different fitness levels, for example, in middle-aged and older adults and how that relates to blood flow in the brain at rest. So those yes. studies exist. They're not, ju they're just not during exercise. Okay. So they, some of those studies do suggest that there's likely a, a slightly higher baseline blood flow in the brain in people who have a greater fitness level or more of a history of exercise. Oh, great. Okay. So that's so, exciting. That is exciting. For those of us who like to, who, who think exercise is important. Okay. So the control group would have a certain blood flow. And then these people that have had uh, cognitive problems or strokes and things would tend to be lower and the exercise, the more fit they are, it tends to be more towards yes. normal levels. Okay. Yep. And there, right. and also there's been uh, uh, papers that have come out in the last few years from some exercise interventions in people who previously did, did not very much exercise. Um, and what they found is that this one year exercise training intervention, um, that there was an association between the magnitude of change in their fitness levels and the magnitude of change in the whole brain uh, blood flow as well as some changes in regional uh, blood flow in the brain. Okay. So that's, that is in uh, like middle-aged and older adults with a one-year aerobic-based exercise intervention. So that's also very exciting to think about that if there's an exercise intervention and you see this slight increase in fitness level, that there was also a slight increase in blood flow in the brain at rest. Okay, great. And you'd assume that that means better function in the brain? Like, did, I, I guess, I don't know in that study, but in other studies, have they looked to see if there's better memory, better... Because um, I know there's a whole thing for a while there about, you know, if you do Sudoku and crosswords and things, you'll, ma you'll maintain your cognitive function better. But then I, I felt like there was that became a bit controversial and it was a bit simplistic and things. Do you know yeah. where things are at with that? Like if you exercise or if you... Uh, keep your brain active. Do you end up with better cognitive function? Do you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's kind of a mixed amount of data, uh, some suggesting that these different brain activity things might be uh, beneficial for maintaining cognition um, versus not doing them. The yeah, it, it's hard to say. I my take is that it's not bad. It can't be. It's not bad it's for not, the brain. It's definitely not bad. You know. But, so, yeah. uh, some of the more recent um, interventions are more multimodal. Um, they're think not. They're thinking about trying to improve cognition and reduce the risk of dementia without not just doing one thing. So they're these are and these have been showing good results in there. You know they're good management of blood pressure. If um, someone is, has high blood pressure, for example, um, their exercise and that exercise is both aerobic based and they, they um, I, I don't remember if they do more of balance and light strength training, or if they do, you know, strength training as well. Um, there's some social components of it. And then some of these, you know, keeping the brain active, but mm -hmm. some of these tests and this kind of multimodal lifestyle approach intervention has has been showing some promise so it's a little bit harder to say which part of that is is maybe having the most benefit but 
um, a lot of those things are, are things that we know are good for not just brain health. They're good for a lot of things, cardiovascular health, you know, quality of life type things um, as, as people are getting older. And do we know intensely, because I was wondering, like, does walking, I know, I know blood flow doesn't necessarily mean improvements, but does walking enough? Because I know I had um, Ben Levine mm-hmm. on, you know, he's saying, oh, walking's great, but we're more sort of metabolic health, but it's not really going to affect cardiovascular function and things. You've got to do a bit higher intensity. Do we know, I guess, do we know about that? Um, um, we we do know a little bit that the intensity piece um, is something that's critical, you know, more exercise at a higher intensity is, is likely better than, than less exercise at lower intensity. But the, if we, if we look at the studies that have shown a positive effect on brain health, whether that be looking at function, um, like functional connections in the brain, whether that is looking at flow in the brain or whether that's looking at cognitive function, uh, a lot of those studies with an intervention in middle-aged and older adults that show a benefit also are moving the needle on fitness and fitness being measured by um, VO2 max or VO2 mm-hmm. peak. Um, okay. So if if we if that's the case, then that would suggest that there at least needs to be a higher high enough intensity that we need to stimulate that cardiorespiratory system to, to increase. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that everything has to be high intensity. It doesn't mean that everything has to be moderate intensity, but there at least needs to be enough of a stimulus to increase fitness. The study that I was talking about, that was a one year long intervention. They did do some high intensity aspects of it. So it wasn't all high intensity, but they did have some high intensity components to it. And I think actually it may have modeled, uh, may have been similar to some of the approaches that Ben Levine's group has used uh, kind of mixing up uh, different intensities of exercise within the same intervention. Yeah, exactly. Now, what about um, resistance training, things like that? So things aren't necessarily going to affect VO2max that much, although they might. Mm -hmm. There's some more recent stuff that maybe if your VO2max is low, it might increase it. But do you know much about yeah, the it's it's not work that I've done, but there are studies, at least from a cognitive standpoint, that suggest in again, this is thinking about um, and this one might be even more older adults, because they're often trying to um, you know, they might be at risk for for dementia, where they did a lot this study or these groups of studies had done a lot of resistance-based and like balanced testing mm-hmm. as well. And they did so, show some improvements in cognitive function. I don't think they measured blood flow at all. Um, my thinking of that is that maybe the blood flow type responses might be more linked to some of the aerobic-based things that okay. we do. But yeah. also there's a lot of, there's a quite the learning component for a lot of people if they are sedentary to learn some of these resistance training um, movements and get comfortable with those. So there might be some, you know, could be something mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, the, the neuroplasticity in the brain or the ability of the, the neurons to adjust to this, that, that might be occurring with. Some yeah, of the well, I was going to ask you about mechanisms that the training would improve cognition and or blood flow, which whatever it is. And I was wondering about endothelial function, which we've talked mm-hmm. about on the podcast. Um, so that's, that's where, Obviously, you know this when telling people, um, you know, if you, the lining of the blood vessels, this is endothelium, 
and you know if if the blood vessels aren't very responsive, and if you have reductions in flow, often you'll find that the endothelial function, so these vessels aren't very responsive and things like that. And you know exercise training tends to increase endothelial function of peripheral blood vessels, and and that can you know help reduce blood pressure if you've got high blood pressure and things like that. Do we know? What's happening? So you just spoke out neuroplasticity is actually, you know, increasing nerves and things like that in the brain. Do we know if exercise affects the endothelial function as it as it does sort of peripheral like fem femoral artery and things like that? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, right now, there's not necessarily agreement of how we measure that. There's a couple different ways that we measure the endothelial function in the cerebral vessels. Um, but the, at least my thinking is that that might be a mechanism by which regular exercise um, does have some improvement on endothelial function in the cerebral vessels. The the proving of that is a little bit more difficult, but there are some there there is data that suggests that one of these measurements that we use to estimate. Um, the function of the cerebral vessels is associated, we've shown and others have shown it's associated with VO2 max. Um, granted, this method that we were using, not every, you know, there, there might be better methods now, but there is some data to suggest that regular exercise might um, have an effect on the cerebral endothelial function. All right. And does that, um, just like it, because uh, it tends to reduce your chance of having coronary heart disease and things like things like that. Does it ha reduce the chance, do you know, of having strokes and things like that? If your exercise, well, I guess, firstly, does exercise reduce the chance of having stroke? And then, do we know? I guess, is it because you improve the endothelial function of the vessels? Or yeah, that's a little bit harder because of the different types of stroke. Um... And there's different causes that could be separate from the cerebral endothelium. Uh, so that I don't know if I could answer about reducing the risk of stroke. Um, I think more what what I would estimate what I would guess that exercise is doing is rather than thinking of stroke as like a major event, is we also have it's also possible to have more of these mini strokes and, mm -hmm. and these these instances that people may not be aware of at all but end up damaging the brain, um, either having micro hemorrhages or, or small areas of the brain where there's more bleeding that's occurring or having areas where there's not enough blood flow and those neurons are damaged because of not enough blood flow to that area. And they're more of a, more of a mini stroke. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that are associated with reducing your risk for, for where we can we can compare groups and we can see people who have this and who don't have this. And a lot of those things that uh, people are focusing on are cardiovascular risk and how cardiovascular risk itself might be relating to these chances of having, um, you know, damage in the brain due to some of these mini strokes, but whether or not it's uh, those effects are completely due to somebody who's exercising or not. It probably it's working through the mechanism of improving overall cardiovascular exercise, improving mm -hmm. overall cardiovascular risk and reducing that risk. And therefore by that, we might be getting a reduction in um, the instance of these more mini strokes. But as far as like a, a major stroke event um, that I couldn't answer. Mm -hmm. so the answer probably exists. It's just that I don't know. These many, yeah, okay. These many stroke is that like transient ischemic episodes? Is that is that part of that 
Um, They'd be less. They'd be less. You probably wouldn't wouldn't even know and probably wouldn't even show up till a lot later. Okay. Now, the other thing is we often talk about Alzheimer's, but there's also this, this, I don't know if you know about this, but, you know, there's all these different types because there's dement, there's, there's vascular dementia, there's Alzheimer's, there's whatever. Do we know if, if exercise reduces the chances of these or slows down the progression or does it, does it have beneficial effects more with, I don't know, vascular dementia than Alzheimer's? Do we, do you know about that at all? Yeah, the the different types of dementia, you know, only now are we do we have better ability to kind of differentiate between those, and we usually we can't completely differentiate because there's a lot of overlying, uh, a lot of overlapping pathology between somebody who may have uh, vascular things that might be leading causing some of the dementia, and they may also have some Alzheimer's risks on top of that, um, but there are some certainly some Alzheimer's specific risks that exercise has been associated with improving or reducing the risk of. And some of that is uh, there's a increase. If you have a certain type of uh, uh, gene allele that has a risk of Alzheimer's disease. And if you do studies that have done exercise in these um, participants who have that do show a benefit. So I think that shows that exercise can probably do something beneficial for reducing the risk of Alzheimer's disease specifically, or at least more of the Alzheimer's type pathology, the amyloid in the brain and the tau in the brain. Um, but then from the, we think of it more as the vascular side uh, might also be improving it. But either way, if you're improving the ability of the blood vessels to uh, help with supply and demand and making sure that the um, brain is adequately supplied and it's very well controlled, that's probably going to also benefit the possible risk of Alzheimer's disease because those proteins in the brain that sort of aggregate and cause what we what we see on the brain of somebody who unfortunately has Alzheimer's disease, the thing about exercise is it might help with some of the uh, clearing of the waste products that are occurring in the brain. And one wow. way that is through, you know, we're, we're, we're allowing better plumbing, if you will, of the mm. brain, or at least, okay. in, you know, keeping things well controlled, tightly controlled, like it is in a healthy, a healthy young adult who has very tight control over their um, blood flow in their brain. Okay, great. All right. Uh, I guess we haven't spoken about mental health. I don't know if you said so depression and things like that. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of talk about exercise, reducing anxiety and depression and things like that. Uh, what am I saying about that? I, I guess is that, as far as you know, is that clearly has been clearly shown? I guess there's always same with everything. If you're exercising, you may tend to have better diet as well and things like that. But is mm-hmm. it? Do you think it's been clearly shown and and maybe higher socioeconomic and all sorts of things? Do you think it's been clearly shown that exercise improves depression, mental health, anxiety? Do you um, yeah, I don't know the literature too much on that. Mm-hmm. My take on that is, I don't know if we independently know that exercise is what's doing it. As you mentioned, I, I think another aspect might be, you know, improvement of sleep might also have a lot of other effects. If you're exercising, yeah, exactly. you start to exercise, and all of a sudden you're sleeping better. There's a lot of things that, that get improved and whether or not that's, that's directly related to exercise or as an indirect effect of exercise. But, but yeah, as far as mental health, I don't know if I can comment on the Fair literature. Enough too. Fair enough. Uh, 
I mean, but anecdotally, maybe same as you, I mean, anecdotally, it seems to be to have a a beneficial effect on people's mood and and things like that. But as far as the exact literature and data, I'm, I'm less familiar with. All right. And again, this is one you probably haven't looked at, but do you know, uh, diet and the brain, uh, people thought, I know people have thought about that and it may affect, I don't know, amyloid and cholesterol and things like that. Do you know much about that with, um, I don't know, blood, brain, flow, blood, brain, brain, blood flow? Or yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a really good question. I don't know um, about that too much. So every once in a while, you'll see a study where it'll be the consumption of something and how that might affect blood flow, cerebral blood flow, uh, caffeine, th- things like that. Um, maybe uh, something with nitrates in it, like beetroot juice. Every once in a while, you'll see some studies like that. Um, but as far as like uh, uh, overall diet, less known uh, about that. However, I will say that the as far as thinking about the overall brain health, not just blood flow, um, there's you may, maybe I don't know if it's been talked about on the show, this podcast or not, but the mind diet. Ah, no, we haven't talked about that. No. So that's um, and there's, this is a, a book that's available anywhere. And there's other there's um, been many studies on this type of diet. But basically, it was a diet that was developed based on this really large scale data set of what people were eating and then following them for many years um, as a longitudinal study. And they would piece out certain things and certain vitamins that seemed to be uh, important. And that's what they kind of came up with the, the mind diet, important for brain health. And a lot of these are things that we already know, uh, you know, mm. eating more uh, mixed berries and things like that, the lower sugar fruits, and there's a, you know, olive oil and and a lot of things that overlap with like the Mediterranean diet, for example. Yeah. There's yeah. a couple specifics in there with um, certain vitamins and, you know, walnuts and things like that. Um, but I mean, that does seem to be, at least in this large scale studies, it does seem to be uh associated with brain health now whether or not there's a lot of studies that show an intervention that you know really demonstrates that it is this specific diet that does that um i don't as far as i know i have not seen that literature yet yeah it'd be but nice one those... so it'd be okay. nice one day but it's a long way off i guess to do the old you know uh, diet, exercise, diet plus exercise, you know, with the brain yes. health and the blood, brain blood flow and all that stuff. I yeah. guess that's a fair way off. So I know you've done a lot of work with sex differences and, and aging. So can we talk about that? So are there, are there sex differences in brain blood flow and et cetera? Yeah, I think one reason that this is interesting for me is that if you look at, um, you know, the, the people who have Alzheimer's disease, um, you know, two thirds of them are females, biological Mm -hmm. females. Um, so that brings up some interesting questions about why this might be. And, um, you know, some of the things are, we know that there's some sex differences in the way blood pressure is regulated. We also know that there's differences between biological males and females and how blood pressure is regulated when the females are, you know, uh, premenopausal uh, versus postmenopausal, and so there's this is there's lots of other uh, cases where where this might might be there. As far as brain blood flow in um, younger premenopausal females, and we're usually thinking of uh, we're usually testing uh, these females. 
um, you know, at the same time of their menstrual cycle, they tend to have larger or a, a higher amount of cerebral blood flow, like whole brain, so global mm -hmm. cerebral blood flow than age match males. But when we get to later in life after menopause, maybe in the fifth, sixth, seventh decade of life, um, then we don't see any differences between males and females in the, okay. the um, global cerebral blood flow. And that's been shown looking at whole brain cerebral blood flow. It's also been shown um, when just looking at a specific blood vessel in the brain. And okay. the... So the interesting thing about that and one area of research that I'm really interested in is if we look at the figure that shows that if we have like our, our young females and then our young males, and then we look at what's happening with age, that magnitude of decline is really happening quite a bit in the females, whereas the males, there's just a very gradual mm. decline in okay. blood flow in the brain. Um, and a lot of, there's not a lot of studies done in that middle-aged range when um, females are undergoing that menopausal transition. But um, that's a really interesting area of research, I think, is to understand what's going on with this blood flow in the brain, both from a whole brain perspective, but also maybe thinking about, as you mentioned, the idea of giving a cognitive test and then watching how the blood flow response and the cognitive test is occurring, you know, in the young age, this middle age range, and then the older age range. So the blood so the blood flow is higher in females, um, and that's how do they? I guess because females are smaller. Is it do, they, do you work it out per kilogram of of body weight? Um, or, uh, you usually they work it out per um, uh, hundred milligrams of tissue of the brain. Oh, which makes so sense. So they're they're indexing it per brain size rather than per. That um, makes body. sense. All right, so this. Same size brain, you have more blood flow. So does it mean females are smarter? Is that what we? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question. Yeah. Um, but the but one I'm, I'm one thinking about that is um, uh, the biological females in the young age category are going to have lower hemoglobin levels than the yes. the young males at yes. that age category. Yes. So it may not be it may not be anything else other yes. than if we're to. Point quantify oxygen delivery, you know, the oxygen content. It might. But what's right. interesting is when we get to the older age category, a lot of times there's still some slight differences in hemoglobin at that. Right. Okay. Um, so, so people, so yeah, the, the classic numbers you tend to say is, you know, males have hemoglobin about 15 grams per hundred mils of blood, females about 13 grams per hundred mils of blood. So they're not carrying as much oxygen per hundred mils. So if you work out, so you're saying basically because you're carrying less oxygen per 100 mils, you need to have more blood flow through the brain to get the same oxygen delivery. And maybe that's why the blood flow is higher in the females per per volume of brain. I guess they've done those calculations though. And does it end up about the same? You know, like if you allow for the lower hemoglobin, does it end up that the, yeah, the oxygen um... delivery is about the same, I guess? I, in the studies that I'm thinking of, including our own at that time, I don't, we did not even capture hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that I don't know if those calculations have been worked out. So one way that we 
look at that or we compare that is when we're looking at like stimulus response, you know, we, we're not really, you know, the baseline blood flow is fine. We look, we're looking at the percent change. If we, you know, maybe give them a cognitive test or we give them some sort of challenge, like giving them CO2, we would look at the change from their baseline blood flow, even if they're slightly different and like how much it's increasing. Yep. Okay. So you think it's probably about the same flow and, and then, and you think, think the response to a stimulus is about the same. So you think it's maybe um, not massive differences between males and females then? Or? Uh, it depends on which stimulus. And there's not a lot of data looking at like the whole brain response between uh, males and females in the young and then males and females in the older age categories. Okay. So there's, there's a lot of questions still there. And the, and the reduction in blood flow in women after menopause, one would assume is because in estrogen is uh, the protective effects of estrogen or whatever are lost. So. Yeah, it, it could be. There might be some other um, factors as well. Um, I mentioned, we talked about before that we assume that more blood flow is better or that maybe maintaining mm -hmm. blood flow is better. But we also, if we think about brain size and what's happening with... Um, oh, Know, metabolism in the brain like how that's changing relative to how flow is changing those uh sort of interrelated variables i think less is known about that e even just from a uh, aging perspective in anybody okay. and then aging's perspective that might be different between males and females okay so with with aging do we know uh is blood flow you said females with age blood flow tends to go down males not so much uh, the old classic question, it probably doesn't work quite the same here, but you know, when we talk about muscle and mitochondrial function and all that stuff, we say, well, how much is the reduction in activity and how mm. much is the age per se? Do we, do people know that like a, a active people have less of a reduction in blood flow with age, for example, or. So you mean physically active or more from yeah, like physically? Well, okay. Fair. That's a fair point. I guess we're talking, obviously, when we're talking about muscle, we're talking about physically active, but you're right. Act mentally, cognitively active versus physically active with age. Do people know that? Or I, I can't say for and, certainty yeah. that we can say that. Uh, main, I would like to say, and I think there's some data that would suggest that maintaining fitness, physical activity, activity, you know, through the lifespan would hopefully lead to a slightly higher blood flow in the brain. Um, a lot of those studies though are not longitudinal, they're cross-sectional. And so there's some cross-sectional comparisons, which as you mentioned, there might be some other things that are different, Bounds. not just mm -hmm. the physical activity. But one thing that's interesting when we, which is different for me when I got into this area, you know, if I'm if I'm thinking about looking at skeletal muscle, if I'm thinking about looking at endothelial function in the, in the periphery, uh, we don't, statistically correct for things like education. Um, when we're thinking about blood flow in the brain, we often are uh, considering education level and things like that um, because there's a really strong relationship between um, educational level or educational attainment and some of these brain factors. Mm -hmm. And that to me is a really, is kind of a, uh, you know, I'm a physiologist, but this is thinking about more, uh, broader sociocultural aspects that might be impacting brain mm -hmm. health that from a statistical standpoint that we are um, 
are, are having to consider and having larger sample sizes so that we can consider those things. Well, there's some evidence that I thought that uh, people that exercise are smarter as well. Right? Have you heard that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so there's a confounder. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, there and there's a really uh, it's one of my uh, studies that I enjoy seeing a lot um, where I, I want to say it was a twin study where they looked at leg strength in postmenopausal females and looked at cognition. <laughs> it was like you know the association between leg strength and cognition you know that that wow. comes out um, you know which is there's a lot of things that could be impacting that and so whether or not it's all physical or if there's some other um, aspects of it. All right, now I've got some questions in, on Twitter, but some of them are a little bit tricky here. But uh, Paul said, does athletic performance enhancing drug EPO, erythropoietin, so that's not, it's not really a drug, it's a hormone, but does it? Yeah, does erythropoietin also have potential to improve cognitive function? I don't, I don't know if you know anything about that. Yeah, I don't know any, uh, of any studies that have done that. However, um, you know, this idea of hemoglobin level and how that might relate ah, to blood true, flow true. is might be related to this That's question. A good point. Um, there is actually a really interesting relationship between hemoglobin level and cognitive function. Um, this is more of a larger scale study where, you know, it wasn't uh, like, especially for females, the, the hemoglobin range, um, you know, from, I can't remember what the exact range with, that they were looking at, but they had a kind of a histogram of the 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 range of hemoglobin. And as far as cognitive function for females, it kind of went up the cognitive function, better cognitive function peaked and then went back down. So there was sort of that middle range of hemoglobin that seemed to be optimal for cognitive mm. function. And it was right in the physiological range of what, what we would expect. Um, in males, it wasn't quite this U-shaped. It kind of went up, you know, went and then kind of went back down. Um, so that more hemoglobin wasn't necessarily okay. more hemoglobin wasn't better for cognitive function. But I do remember in that paper, because we've become really interested in this particular paper, mm -hmm. but um, in that paper, they did mention that at least for the people who were anemic, you know, the lower hemoglobin was linked to worse cognition. So yeah. whether or not EPO like would enhance cognitive function, in most people, I don't know the answer to that, but you know, mm. if we think about in a person who's anemic and increasing their hemoglobin a little bit, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But this is again cross-sectional studies. You know, if these people were had this hemoglobin level for a decade or not, um, mm. you know, and also, the acute effects versus the chronic effects of this hemoglobin level, I don't, I don't know. And you'd also wonder if there'd be auto regulation anyway. So if the brain is, because you know how you said it's regulating based on co2 and things if it's also mm -hmm. regulating based on oxygen and it, and it and it's like okay i need a certain amount of oxygen you'd think if the hemoglobin is really high it would just reduce the blood flow a bit so you get the same yeah. oxygen delivery right yeah yeah, yeah. all right uh angela's interesting question though yeah angela uh, angela's asked a question we've talked about alzheimer's a bit but she's just said uh bdnf brain derived neurotrophic uh, neurotrophic factor i think it is do you know, because uh, I think that's increased by exercise. I'm not sure if you know uh, or not. Do you know, is there something going on there that exercise might affect Alzheimer's by affecting BDNF or anything like that? Yeah, no. uh, both 
animal-based studies and uh, some human studies have suggested that, uh, that, you know, an acute bout of exercise would increase circulating BDNF, which would be helpful for the health of the neurons in the brain. It would be helpful for neuroplasticity in the brain to have these slightly higher levels. So there's other, um, in addition to BDNF, there's other factors, other circulating factors that, that are thought to be upregulated acutely by exercise that may have a beneficial effect on the neurons in the brain. Oh, yeah. Now, what about um, before we came on, we were talking about exosomes and things. So mm -hmm. is there evidence, you know, this we, we realize more and more how integrative exercise is. So you're getting, you know, release of factors from the muscle that go to the liver and, you know, assume to the brain and well, it depends if they cost. I guess we haven't talked about the blood, the blood brain barrier, but is there also, you know, things released from the, I know that BDNF is released from the brain and can be picked up in the, the periphery. So do you know, is there much communication going on now? I guess, I guess we've been thinking about exercise and just the brain and the, the blood flow, but is there communication from the periphery to the brain? Do you know? Yeah, I think that's the thinking is that the skeletal muscles, the myokines that might be uh, released from the skeletal muscle during exercise might be able to have some impact on the brain. And some of this work, there's there's some studies in humans that are coming out. These are difficult studies to do, obviously, in humans. But some of the animal literature does suggest that, you know, things that might be released from the skeletal muscle, uh, you know, then they start, they're able to do all these sophisticated techniques in the the animal studies that do see um, some neurogenesis in the brain that may be linked to some of these factors. So as okay. far as like an exhaustive list of what, what things are released that may impact the brain, I don't think we know all that yet, but. Yeah. So years ago, it was thought that, you know, the, the brain cells you had initially, that was it. And there was no neurogenesis, no uh, neuroplasticity. But um, mm -hmm. it's it's thought now that there is now. Yeah, what what do they know? Do you know from some of these animal studies? So what have they done there? What are they finding that um, some of the agents that are produced by muscle, if they infuse those or something, can they cause neurogenesis in the brain? Or yeah, some of these are based on infusing them, but others are based on trying to block them. Block them. That's true. So they'll they'll do they'll allow access to a running wheel, for example, and then they'll have the ability in another group to have access to a running wheel, but block a specific block mm -hmm. um, and prevent some of the neurogenesis that they that they see. Cool. So mm -hmm. those are some of those sophisticated studies, and I don't know if I can uh, recall all the factors that they've now tested um, that shows that it at least has some effect in acutely on the brain or. Uh, when I say acute, some of these are, you know, giving access to a running wheel for seven days or 14 days or something. Okay. Like that. Uh -huh. All right. So Mark Preben Lindbach, who often asks questions and lots of questions and great questions said, uh, can exercise normalize the risk of cognitive impairment slash dementia and people with diabetes or hypertension? Do you know about? Yeah, uh, I would, I would like to think that it does. I don't know about normalize. Um, but certainly reduce the the risk. As far as people with hypertension and diabetes, I think yes, we know we know exercise already does tends to have some some benefit in that group anyways. But I don't know if I can say that it would completely normalize it. And some of this comes from, um, you know, the the causes of cognitive impairment. There's multiple. There's many causes of cognitive impairment. 
if I think about blood flow to the brain as a potential way of, of, of maintaining blood flow to the brain as a potential way to mitigate some of the risk, um, what percent that is, we don't know. Um, certainly exercise in these cross-sectional studies and some of these longitudinal studies, exercise at least seems to uh, have an effect on blood flow to the brain, you know, where it's slightly higher in people who at baseline who yeah. exercise regularly and then the studies that do the interventions. Um, so I would imagine that even though some of these studies weren't specifically, some of them had hypertensive participants, some of them did not, um, but we would expect the same would be for hypertension and diabetes. Yeah. Normalizing is a little bit difficult to think about because yeah, these long, these long mm. studies, if they're a year or two, you know, a positive effect is actually not improving cognition, it's maintaining cognition. Maintaining Once we get to that. these older age groups, 70, you know, 70, 80 years old, we're really trying to just maintain what's there. Exactly. And we haven't talked too much about cognitive reserve. Um, that's not an area of research that, that I look into, but um, the idea of cognitive reserve is that some people are starting higher on this uh, theoretical graph. And so they do mm. decline with age, but they maintain, they decline with age, but they still maintain this functional status for a lot longer where mm. some people are starting lower. And so okay. they may be declining slower, but they are because they're starting lower, much like what we see with the idea of how VO2 max, yeah, to max. changes with age with yeah. our I'm highly training. trained. And then mm. those are the, the rest of us, normal folks. <laughs> Okay, so we've kind of touched on this, but do you know, does exercise uh, slow the onset of these things, so cognitive impairment, Alzheimer's and things, uh, or is it the progression or both? Do you know? We've sort of touched on this, but yeah. Delay yeah, the onset? I would, I, I would yeah. the way I view this, and I think I would uh, be speaking for um, several of the people that I, I work with and who are in my areas that, Exercise is probably the most potent and the most useful in the prevention arm of this, rather than once there's already onset, because yeah, yeah, um, yeah. at that point, we're already at a lower kind of cognitive reserve and we're just trying to maintain the best we can. Uh, whereas earlier, you know, lifelong exercise, exactly lifelong right. healthy habits probably, probably are what is necessary. There's a lot of research in that midlife range um, when we start to see these risk factors turn into, you know, actual cardiometabolic disease. It's probably similar in the brain because the Alzheimer's disease and dementia can start, you know, people thought maybe 10 years before, but now we're seeing indications of some of these neurotoxic proteins in the brain that can be detected 20 or 30 years before the onset of uh, cognitive mm -hmm. decline. So I think that idea of prevention, maybe we were thinking about that you know, in midlife, but maybe that mm, prevention is actually, we, we need to be even earlier because of the accumulation of these things that, you know, the brain is very good. It's very, it's regulating. It's, it's doing all these things that we need for a really long time. And then at some point starts to mm. decline. Well, it's probably, I, I keep thinking, you know, I've said our integrated the body is, and quite often you'll, you'll look at different systems and it's the same deal. So just like with mm -hmm. diabetes, you're obviously much better off uh, trying to prevent the diabetes than in the, than than slowing the progression of it. It's you know, obviously it's better to to prevent and and then again earlier rather than than later. Great, All right. Uh, now, Mark Preben Lindbeck, one more here. What are the main proposed mechanisms to how exercise decreases the risk of cognitive decline 
what type of amount of exercise is most not effective? So again, we've touched on this. Uh, any thoughts? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. We talked a little bit about blood flow. Obviously, I'm, I study blood flow, so that's could be one mechanism that I'm going to point to of how exercise may affect uh, the brain. Um, you know, mitochondrial function, we talked about a, a little bit. You know, there's a lot of thinking of just the mitochondrial function in the brain might be a way that okay. exercise might be, you know, uh, uh, effective. The studies with neurogenesis, so not just maintaining the health of the neurons, but actually allowing neurons to grow uh, with exercise is an, another potential mechanism. Um, we're really interested in this idea of intensity of exercise, intensity of aerobic-based exercise, and what intensity maybe has the, what's the biggest bang for your buck in terms of blood flow to the brain and for intensity. Um, that's something we're investigating now. We haven't published uh, published all that work yet. Um, but independent of intensity of aerobic based exercise, the, the type of exercise resistance exercise, we talked about resistance versus aerobic, you know, what is better for the brain? A lot of those questions aren't, aren't necessarily known. We did a comparison between these were all in young adults, but looking at, um, blood flow in the brain and, and regulation of blood flow by the blood vessels in the brain in young sedentary, young purely resistance trained and, and um, young aerobic trained adults. Okay. And our idea was um, that there's differences in arterial stiffness between these um, different types of exercise. There's been differences in our, in our, the stiffness of the blood vessels, particularly the carotid uh, artery. And we thought that this might be important. And when we looked at it, there were, there were no differences between those groups and the young. We probably need to okay. look at the the middle-aged, um, uh, middle-aged adult, uh, maybe older adult categories to, to address that question. But, but certainly the, uh, a variation, different, different types of exercise, you know, there's a lot of information that's not really known as far as what's the best, uh, for the brain. seems like what the best is, is whichever one, one will do. Exactly right. Exactly right. Because we get we get too complicated and people get caught up on should I be doing this or this and just do something. That's the main mm -hmm. problem population wise, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what I was thinking also was remember we touched on earlier when you're doing a aerobic exercise, your systolic blood pressure goes up a bit. You might go from 120 to one, you know, 130, 140, 150, mm -hmm. 160, something like that, but not massive. The diastolic doesn't change that much. You might might even go down. But mm -hmm. uh, during like resistance training, you can get like you know. So instead of systolic over diastolic, 120 over 80 at rest, it could be like 400 over 300 or something. Do we know what happens to blood blood flow in the brain under those circumstances? Like, does it have to constrict like crazy to try and maintain normal flow? Or Yeah, exactly. That's a great question. That's one re The blood pressure responses were one reason we were interested in. Uh, looking at these differences um, in the young adults. Um, I was just re-looking at a study that was published um, a number of years ago now where they they didn't look at resistance exercise per se, but they looked at like hand grip exercise. And they looked at the blood one of the blood vessels in the brain using a, a really high powered um, MRI scanner, a 7T scanner. And they did see constriction of the blood vessel uh, during that hand grip, like rhythmic gripping of exercise, which doesn't really represent necessarily resistance or aerobic, but what it does tell is because there is a blood pressure response with this, uh, hand grip type exercise that the, that the middle cerebral artery 
blood vessel was constricting in response to that. To, to try and maintain just normal flow. Yeah. Yep. yep. Okay. And yeah. they, did, I don't believe they had flow with that. We would expect that flow might increase slightly with it, uh -huh. but, um, but the blood but vessel. Stop it going high. massively up. Yeah. Cause if exactly. pressure went up a lot and you don't constrict the vessel, the flow would go yep. up a lot. Yep. 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 All right. Now, what I like to ask sometimes is, is there, are there controversies in the field? I'm sure there are, but because, you know, I'm not an expert on the, I think I've demonstrated today, I'm not an expert on the brain and exercise and the brain generally. Um, so I wouldn't know if, if you were saying some stuff that like someone else is listening going, hang on a minute, that's not. So there's sort of controversies in the field that that we should talk about a little bit or. Yeah, I think one of the controversies, which we spent a little bit of time talking about earlier is, um, you know, right now, it's not like we have a gold standard of saying this is how you have to measure blood flow in the brain. And this is okay. the best way to do this. And this is the best way to do that. So a lot of this is kind of like uh, evolving, continuously evolving uh, what ways we can measure it and what what the best way is. And so I think that is part of the controversy. And while that might seem uh, separate from our discussion today, it actually is highly involved in why we don't know all of these things mm. about what's happening in the brain is because of how these techniques are evolving mm. over time and allowing us to ask these questions in a very systematic way. Um, I think you touched on the other one. Uh, there's a lot of people in the field or just in the general, like people who are in the, the field of looking at the brain is that exercise may not have an improvement on cognitive function. And I had mentioned about the studies that often see an improvement in fitness also show an improvement in cognition, but there's a lot of studies, any type of exercise study might do an intervention and have a variety of outcomes that don't see uh, significant okay. changes in fitness. And so it might be uh, maybe a controversy in the field, but also not different from a lot of other exercise physiology studies mm. that may look at exercise interventions. So have people done meta-analyses, because there's more and more, as you see, meta-analyses, systematic reviews coming out. Have people done meta-analyses of exercise training and looked at studies where there was an increase in VO2max and whether there's an improvement in cognitive function? There are some, not all of them will, will go by VO2 max, but if you look into the, if you look into the meta-analyses, you can sometimes get that information and it's a mix, it's mixed results. I mean, I've reviewed ones that say there's no difference. I've reviewed ones that say there are a difference, mm -hmm. uh, but thinking about it from an exercise physiologist perspective, you know, I'm looking at the intervention and seeing if the intervention is structured appropriately, you know, like all those things that we know are important for exercise interventions. And some of these are more from a feasibility or a community-based standpoint where, um, you know, the exact exercise protocol is maybe less important for them or for the outcomes that they're looking for. And so not that they're, not that, not that that invalidates the study. It's just that they were looking at different things for different reasons. Yeah. And then, and even if it didn't, I mean, obviously exercise has so many benefits. So if it's improving cardiovascular mm -hmm. function, improving their ability to get around and their balance and their, you know, getting out of a chair and everything, even if it didn't improve cognitive function, you'd like to think that it would reduce their likelihoods of becoming depressed or, you know, like, or, yeah. or just quality you know, of life, health span, quality of life, et cetera. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, one of the, okay. The main reason I do inside exercise is I want people to get their information from the experts such as yourself, self, rather than from influencers. Okay. That's what I always say at the start. And that's absolutely what I want. Now, is there, is there something 
that bugs you? So I've started asking this question. Is there something that bugs you that 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 influences a saying or that, that, that you read on social media or something that you want? Here's my chance to, you know, clear that up. Um, uh, oh, there's probably so many. <laughs> yeah. Let me think of one. <laughs> that we, right. I guess for me, the um, I feel like a lot of this and we kind of what we just talked about, some of this is just overcomplicated. You know, mm. we're overcomplicating things it, like it. Oh, should I be doing this? Or maybe I should be doing this, or I need to be doing only high intensity interval training this many days a week. And I need to be, I have all my wearables and I need to have all of these things tracked and do it in this way. And if I don't do it that way, it's useless. And so I feel like what we just talked about, anything is better than nothing, doing something you enjoy and doing it, you know, doing whatever that might be, whatever variety of activities that may be and doing it over the lifespan. That's really, it's, it's not more complicated than that. Exactly. And I feel like that in increased complexity, I think originally comes from wanting to understand more and being excited about it. But I think for some people who maybe aren't as enthusiastic about exercise, I feel like that becomes a barrier when there's all these unknowns and not sure mm. if they're doing it right. And exactly, exactly. Right. All right. Now, is there anything um, we've we've covered a lot of ground here? Is there anything you're you're doing at the moment you're excited about? Any, anything you want to talk about that we haven't discussed? Um, uh, we we did discuss it. We're really excited about some of these uh, exercise in the brain studies that we're hoping to get out, both looking at intensity and looking at these different techniques. Uh, we've been working on them for a long time, so it'll be nice when they come out. I don't know if they'll answer some of the questions that we talked about today, but they'll at least be a step forward in some of these questions that we still have. Right. All right. So I'd like to finish up with some sort of bottom line takeaway sort of messages that you want to make, make sure people get from this chat. Did do you have a few that you want to sum up with? Um, I guess the, the, the one thing is that you know, we, we, the data suggests that blood flow to the brain is a, a important potential risk factor for thinking about um, the risk of, of dementia, the risk of cognitive impairment. So maintaining a level of blood flow in the brain is important. And so we discussed some differences between uh, biological males and females and how they may change over the lifespan. The, the relative importance of that, we don't really know, but we do we do observe this. Um, and then we also talked about there is data that suggests that people who do, who have higher levels of fitness and uh, do more exercise, especially when thinking about the middle-aged, older age categories, have higher blood flow in the brain. And so we do think that those are, that's a benefit and that that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, should have some positive effect on um, brain health. We kind of dive in and we dove in and talked a lot about vessel function and different techniques and things like that. And that's more helping us understand the underlying physiology and how flow in the brain changes in this area or it increases in that area. And I think that area of research will just continue to grow and let us know more about it. I think once we know more about it, then we can start to narrow down on some of these research questions that we talked about today. But bottom line is, you know, with aging, these uh, there's some things that are occurring and exercise at least seems to be doing something beneficial. Um, uh, the magnitude of that, I think, is still uh, has yet to be uh, yet to be identified. Yeah, and I think it's exciting that there's so much more to be done. I think it's, uh, mm -hmm. you know, there's lots of questions and lots more to be done. So people should uh, 
to contact your students that want to uh, research, yeah? Yeah, yes, yeah. certainly. And what, and what about the funding? Is it, is, it, is it hard to get funding or is it just as hard for everything else, I guess? Probably just as hard. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. to do pure exercise research is, is mm-hmm. uh, challenging to get funding for. Um, we're really excited about some of these exercise-based studies looking at differences between young and older adults, looking at differences between um, you know different groups that may have different risk based on maybe their genotype. Um, and how genotype may influence some of these responses that we see. So um, there's a lot of ways that we can uh, ask these questions that are really important from a funding perspective that we can also then learn a little bit more about the exercise physiology portion of exactly. it. Exactly. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming on. It was great. Yes. Thank and, you. Uh, okay. See you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Goodbye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And please like, subscribe, pass it on to your friends and colleagues. Check out the other podcasts. Thanks again.